The text for Pastor John's message this morning is found in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast of you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions which you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be made worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, since indeed God deems it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant rest with us to you who are afflicted. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his call and may fulfill every good resolve and work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, in you and him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we saw from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 that when a person is converted, that person is metamorphosed from a jellyfish into a dolphin. Remember that? Which means that before conversion, we're like jellyfish in the sea of secularism. Just current takes us this way and a current takes us that way. And the God of this age is at work in the sons of disobedience and we follow the course of this world. And then along comes the power of God and delivers us from this kingdom of darkness puts us at the right hand of the Father, infuses us with a new homesickness, and we are free to be dolphins in the sea of of our culture and, and cut a path toward... And that's where this morning comes in. It, it, it would be just as sad as a jellyfish if a dolphin didn't know where he was going. My father used to get up and race from the bedroom out to the kitchen. I could hear him coming. And sometimes he'd get there and he would just look around and he didn't know what he was hurrying for. And I always laughed as a kid. My dad is really a mover. But he's not always sure where he's moving to. And that's a sad thing. It's sort of humorous. But that's not the way dolphins should be. Dolphins have new freedom and therefore they carry a burden. They need to know where they're going. And so... Christians, above all people, ought to be goal-oriented people. Now, I'm not saying task-oriented people. Somebody, when I preached last night, came up and reminded me that, that, that there are different ways people go about getting things done. Some are sort of intuitive types who, nevertheless, I argued, go for things. They may go passionately. They may go on the basis of desires. Others, you know, rationally work through all the pros and cons and figure out their course and then resolutely go. And either way, that's what I mean by goal-oriented. We, what I'm against is jellyfish. Just being carried around by the forces that are surrounding you. 
Now, today's text is intended then to, to pick up on that dolphin life to which we're called and give us some help with it. And it's verses 11 and 12 of 2 Thessalonians 1. Let's read it again. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his call and may fulfill every good resolve and work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before I state the doctrine that I see in those verses, let me emphasize that your version may read desire, it may read purpose, mine reads resolve, the word eudokia covers the whole range. And the point is, whatever you want to call it that is going out of you to attain goodness or to attain something valuable, whether it's going out in desire or going out in resolution or going out in purpose, that's what I mean when I use the word resolve in this message, okay? So don't stumble over my use of the word resolve if your text says desire or purpose. I'm embracing all of that when I say resolve. Now, here's the, the doctrine that I would state. It is the duty of Christians to seek God's power to fulfill good resolves. It is the duty of Christians to seek God's power to fulfill good resolves. You see that right there in verse 11, can't you? Where he prays for the people that that they may fulfill every good resolve and work of faith by His power. We should seek God's power to fulfill good resolves. And I have two questions I want to ask about this, this lesson. One, why? Why is that a duty? And two, how do we go about fulfilling it? So let's talk about why. Paul is a great why asker, isn't he? And I'm glad because I'm a why asker. So every time he says something significant, I say, why? And he always gives two or three reasons. And there are three right here in this text. Let's look at them one at a time. The first reason this is a duty is because, according to verse 11, this is the way we become worthy of God's calling. Now, let me see if you agree with me on this. In the first half of the verse, it says that God is to be engaged, according to Paul's prayer, in making us worthy. May God make you worthy of his call. And then in the second half of the verse, it says, I want God to fulfill your good resolves. Now, how do those two things relate to each other? Fulfilling our good resolves and making us worthy. Well, I think they're the same thing. That is, fulfilling our good resolves is the means or the way that he makes us worthy. It's not as though there were two separate things. Over here, we're becoming worthy of God. And over here, we're fulfilling good resolves. Surely, he means that they're the same thing. And one is the means to the other. So that the point I'm drawing out of that is... We should want to seek God's power to fulfill good resolves because therein God makes us worthy of our calling. So we need to ask, what is this, becoming worthy of your calling? Well, if you want to turn back a couple of pages, there's a great verse on the calling in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. 1 Thessalonians 2, 12, which talks about the worthiness that we should have and the call that we have. 
it, it, it's a, an encouragement or an exhortation to the church there. It says to lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So there you have the two ideas back to back again. And what's the calling here? It's a calling to glory. It's a call to destiny, to glory. It's the same thing we talked about back in Romans 8.30 a couple of months ago. Remember? Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. So the, the call is a call to glory. And so verse 11 is saying, there is a way to live that is worthy of that call to glory. And worthy doesn't mean they're deserving or meritorious. You, you, you use the word worthy this way, too. If, if you have a guest coming to stay with you and you want to fix up a room, a special room for this guest, you may paint the walls and polish the woodwork and buy a new bedspread for the spare bed. And uh, then you stand back and you look at the room and you ask yourself, now, is that worthy of my guest? And by that, you don't mean, is it deserving so that when he looks at it, he'll say, that's good enough, I'll come. You mean, he's coming, I love him, I want to honor him, and how can I make this room worthy of him? That, that's the sense in which it's used here. So God has begun a, a, a redecorating project on our lives, and repainting the walls, and getting out the old shades, and uh, putting on the new bedspreads, and the way we work on becoming worthy is by resolving to get the junk out of our lives. So I think that's the connection here in this verse. God, by his power, enables us to resolve or to desire or to purpose change in our lives. And that change is the becoming worthy of the calling that we have from him. So the first reason why we should want his power to fulfill good resolves is that thereby we become worthy of his calling. Second reason. It's right here in the first half of verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. If you work on a room to get it ready for a guest so that it is worthy of him, you honor him, you glorify him. But that's not the, the main way of looking at it in these verses, I don't think. The connection between verse 11 and 12, I think you can see best by focusing on that little phrase at the end of verse 11, by his power. You see that? Paul prays that God would fulfill their good resolves and works of faith by his power so that Christ, the mediator of this power, gets glory. If you do your resolves in your power, you'll get the glory. Right? The logic of the two verses is, if God gives you the power to fulfill your good resolves, God will get the glory when they're fulfilled. And Paul wants God to get the glory, and therefore, that's an incentive for seeking God's power. Now, do you see in this verse, in these two verses, the difference between morality and Christianity? I've said a lot from this pulpit. There is such a thing as godless immorality, which everybody knows. And there is such a thing as godless morality, which not as 
many people know. And yet it's so plain in this verse right here what I mean by that. You see it? Paul prays that they would not make godless resolves. What's a godless resolve? Well, a godless resolve is a resolve that is not made in God's power or for God's glory. Oh, that everybody who comes to Bethlehem could give an account of the phrase sinful morality. I tried that out on my sons yesterday at breakfast. I said, guys, I've, I've been talking about this now for many, many years. Tell me, what do I mean when I say sinful morality? And they got it. Carson said, doing right, not for God. That's right. And that's sin. This text is radically God-centered. You see that? Paul doesn't give a rip about good resolves that are not done in God's power and for God's glory. It's just right there on the face of it. He prays for the church. Oh God, you come in and fill their resolves up so that you in your son Jesus Christ get the glory. And thus he directs the church to the second incentive for why they should seek God's power to fulfill their resolves, namely so that God might get the glory. Oh, that we might be radically God centered and saturated and besotted people at Bethlehem who don't get seduced into substituting American morality for Christianity, which has God and Christ at the center of every deed or it is no good at all. And then the third and final reason for why we should seek God's power to fulfill good resolves is at the end of verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. So the reason you should want to seek God's power to fulfill good resolves is so that you can be glorified with Christ. Now someone will say, hmm, didn't you teach us a couple of months ago from Romans 8.30 that all those who are called are justified and all those who are justified are glorified so that there's an infallible connection between our calling at conversion and our glorification and there's an absolute security and assurance there? And I say, yes, that's exactly what I taught and believe. And then they would say, but it looks here as though Paul is praying that certain conditions would be fulfilled like walking worthy of his call and fulfilling good desires. Well, which is it? Is our glorification certain or is it dependent on these things like fulfilling good resolves? Oh, I hope you could all answer that. It's both. It is absolutely certain for those who are called and it is dependent on the fulfillment of good resolves. And that is not an inconsistency if you believe in the sovereignty of God. It's a terrible inconsistency if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. You see, if you believe that God is sovereign, then he can do this, which he does do. 
He can call. He can establish an infallible connection between your call and your glorification. He can appoint and ordain that there be prerequisites of obedience for glory. And then, just like this verse teaches, he can, in response to the prayers of God's people, come in and by his power fulfill those prerequisites and preserve your assurance and your security. Is that plain? You do not have to choose between assurance of glorification and the necessity of obedience. You cannot, if you're a biblical Christian, choose between those two. They are both taught. And that is the grand third incentive for why we should seek God's power. Because our glory hangs on it. Isn't that what it says? God, would you please fulfill their good resolves so that you would be glorified in them and they in you? Doesn't so that mean this is the pathway to glory? And this alone? I think that's what it means. So in summary, here are the three reasons why we should seek God's power to fulfill good resolves. One, it is the means by which we walk worthy of our calling. Two, it is the means by which God gets the glory and not us in our lives. And three, it is the means by which we attain to glorification. Now, if that's an adequate incentive, then the burning question is, what in the world does this mean practically? How do you get power in your life? for the fulfillment of good resolves. And I just have two, two comments to make, two points under this question. And the first one is this. When I say that you should seek God's power to fulfill your good resolves, I do not mean that you stop willing or you stop working. The engagement of God's power never takes the place of your engagement of will. This is a necessary corrective for some of you, evidently, misconstruing perhaps some of the emphases that I have made on the sovereignty of God in past weeks. So I'm going to say it in several different ways. The power of God in sanctification never makes a Christian passive. On the contrary, the power of God in sanctification is always beneath, behind, and within our experience of willing. The only way you will experience the power of God in your life in sanctification is as a surge of will. Not an absence of willing. A surge of desire, not an absence of desire. Anyone who says, well, I believe in the sovereignty of God to handle my sanctification, so I'll sit back and watch and see what he does with my sin, doesn't believe in the sovereignty of God. Because if you believed in the sovereignty of God, why would you disobey him so blatantly? And surely it is disobedience. Because when you sit back to do nothing, you don't do nothing. You do something. Namely, you engage your will to sit back 
You see? There's no escaping choice. There's no escaping the use of your will. You will use it one way or the other. So the point here is that those of us who believe in the sovereignty of God must never fear to engage our will, our desire, our purpose with all the power that lies within us. Now, is that plain? That the power of God in sanctifying you is only experienced as a rise of your own will. As an upsurge of your own desire for godliness. It never short circuits your will and turns you into a machine. Never. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Now the second point under this question of how is perhaps even more important. It's this. When by the power of God you are granted to fulfill a good resolve, that good resolve becomes a work of faith. You see that here in verse 11 now? Look at these two phrases right beside each other and let's ask how they relate. Paul prays that God would fulfill their good resolve and work of faith. Now, I don't think those two things are talking about two different parts of your life as though a a resolve to do a work of goodness were somehow not to be done in faith or as though a work of faith were somehow performed without no without any resolution the two are are surely one viewed from two different aspects when you say uh, resolve of goodness you mean you're focusing on the the beneficent and the loving outcome of the resolution. And when you say work of faith, you're focusing on the process and the means by which the work is performed when it's resolved. So my point here is that when God, by His power, fulfills one of your good resolves, it's a work of faith, which leaves us with this last question. It's the most practical thing you can ask as 1986 approaches. What is a work of faith? What is that? Or more more practically yet, how can I do my work so that it can be called then a work of faith? And I'll close with three illustrations that I think will answer that question at least as, as well as I can answer it. Suppose you resolve in 1986 to read the Bible 15 minutes a day. I hope most of you are beyond 15 minutes, but if you've been flopping all over the place without any discipline, maybe this would be a good place to start. I resolve to read my Bible every day in 1986, 15 minutes, and to pray through it as I read it. Now, how do you proceed so that that becomes a work of faith rather than a work of Legalism. And I think this is the answer. The first thing you do is you stockpile an arsenal of biblical promises like 
Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in everything he does he prospers. That's a weapon now in the arsenal. So you get up January 10th, way behind in your work, and a little voice comes into your mind and says, you don't have time to read the Bible this morning. Because if you take time to read the Bible this morning, you will not get all your work done and you won't prosper. Now, how do you fulfill that resolve? You fulfill it by faith in the promise of Psalm 1. Do you believe Psalm 1 or don't you believe Psalm 1? He who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night is like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. In everything he does, he prospers. Its leaf does not wither. Is that true? You see where the rubber meets the road? Faith will either result in the work or it won't. A work of faith is a fulfilled resolution that has by faith overcome the obstacles to that resolution. Here's another one. Suppose you resolve in 1986 to get closer to a wartime lifestyle. Suppose you're fed up with how much you've been spending on yourself. Fed up with putting so much away in big fat interest account. Suppose you now want to follow Terry Nelson's R-A-I-L, rail, uh, realistically austere income level, which you'll determine for yourself. And everything above that's going to go for God's cause in the world. And you're going to tithe. And you're going to give above the tithe to other institutions. All right? You make this resolve. How does the giving of that money to Bethlehem and other agencies become a work of faith? Same way. First thing you do is you stockpile some weapons in your mind, like God is able to provide you with every blessing and abundance in order that you might have enough for yourself and to supply an abundance for every good work. God loves a cheerful giver. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Seek the kingdom first and all these things will be added to you. My God can supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And then comes the voice along about March and says, Look, if you keep giving that much to the church, you're not going to be able to take a vacation this summer like you planned. You keep giving that much to the Lord, you won't have enough laid away for retirement. You keep giving that much to the Lord, etc., etc. Now, how are you going to win how are you going to fulfill this resolve? Answer, you're going to believe the Word of God. That's all. Because if you believe the Word of God, seek the kingdom first and all these things will be added to you, then your realistically austere income level will be sufficient and you will conquer the devil and his lies. One last illustration. Suppose you resolve in 1986... To become more evangelistically involved. Suppose you want to join the 2020 vision and the 200 people in those groups who are going to, during January, 
resolve to fulfill eight steps toward becoming evangelistic in their lifestyle. Simple steps moving toward encounters with unbelievers. And you say, yes, I'm going to join with the 2020 people and I'm going to follow through in January and I'm going to talk to Joe before this month is over about some spiritual things. Now, how does that become a work of faith? Well, you combat the lie of Satan. His first lie will go something like this. If you get into a conversation with Joe, he's going to bring up a theological question you can't answer. And you're going to look like a fool. Now, how do you combat that? Well, you believe, Mark 13, 11. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. You believe that? You believe that God cares enough about His witnessing children that He will supply their needs in those kinds of encounters? Or do you not believe it? And here's the second lie that Satan will come with. He'll say, hey, this is going to be intolerable in the office when it gets out on the table that you're not only a Christian, but you go to a Baptist church. Hey, this is going to be bad news for you. Baptists are no press in Minneapolis. Miserable when everybody knows this. Well, how do you fight that? How do you win so that this is now a work of faith? Well, you just believe Jesus when he says, Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice in that day and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You believe that? Or don't you believe it? It's an issue of faith in the Word of God. It's that simple. Do we believe or don't we? So here, here's my closing admonition. Seek the power of God for the fulfillment of your good resolves. Which means two things. Stockpile the weapon of His Word in your heart. Manifold promises in the Word of God. And second, pray that God would make you reasonable enough to believe God instead of Satan. If you ask me, how does the power of God become active in my life to fulfill good resolves? I would answer, the power of God becomes active in your life by making you reasonable enough to believe God. <laughs>